Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. After the Coronation, What Next for the Church and State? by Jonathan Chaplin. The magnificent and mysterious pageantry of the coronation, climaxing in the thrill of Zadok the priest, bursting out over the royal anointing and the tremulous descent of St Edward's crown onto the head of the king, are now receding into memory. The performative power of the event may linger for a while, but the time for critical reflection on what just happened has already begun. The event will have evoked a wide variety of responses in different sections of the nation. Polls suggest that the majority remained largely indifferent, probably including many who had the TV on in the background while enjoying a long weekend spent on other things. A minority, not only vocal supporters of Republic, will have found the whole thing objectionable in principle. That will likely include many among the majority of young people who now report sharply declining support for the monarchy itself. Some, also a minority, will have looked to it to reconnect with long-standing British traditions that allow us to rise even momentarily above the grasping character of party politics and to offer a fractured and anxious people a renewed prospect of national harmony. For some among that minority, the religious character of the event will have been important, to many from non-Christian faiths, coronation consolidates an Anglican establishment which, they think, serves to protect the public standing of all faiths. The welcome participation of representatives of Britain's minority faiths in the event will have confirmed that perception. To others in the same minority, Christianity, represented here by the Church of England, is an essential thread in the weave of a national culture in need of shoring up. To have tampered overmuch with its religious character would have been to undermine their sense of cultural identity, whatever they made of it theologically, if anything. To still others, we're now talking about a small minority within a minority, the Christian character of the event is decisive to its intrinsic meaning and public significance. Mostly, but not exclusively, English Anglicans, the category includes many Catholics, for example, such voices claim that the coronation expresses a distinctively Christian theology of accountability and service that has been vital in the formation of Britain and should be retained if such goals are to be kept alive. Political authority, they argue, is a trust from God, laying on its holders a solemn covenantal duty to govern according to God's justice and to serve the common good. This theology was lucidly expressed in the Church of England's commentary on the coronation liturgy and appeared in many other Christian statements ahead of the event, for example, a number of articles on seen and unseen. Bishop Graham Tomlin expressed doubt that there could be a better way to uphold a vision of accountable government. The few in the secular media that did recognise its specifically Christian character mostly reacted indifferently or adversely to it, some drew attention to the incongruity of one small and declining English Christian denomination continuing to preside over the investiture of the head of state of a 
pervasively secularised, religiously plural and multinational United Kingdom. The Guardian's Martin Kettle even claimed that the event amounts to a lie in the heart of the British state. The lie is that Britain is a practising Christian nation and that it is defined and held together by the established Protestant religion of which the monarch is the embodiment. Whether or not we accept that harsh verdict, it is surely necessary for the Church of England to confront the bleak sociological facts behind it. With fewer than 3% of the population actively committed to the Church of England, what remains of its entitlement to enjoy the privileges and bear the responsibilities of being the national church? Is there not a glaring presumption in wishing to remain the custodian of the faith of the nation, when the nation has overwhelmingly abandoned that faith, however much some still feel an affection for it as an embellishment of English culture? But the Church of England should not be driven primarily by sociological considerations telling, though they are. It should be guided by theological imperatives. And that requires it to revisit the theology of accountability outlined above. The problem is not with the claim that rulers are accountable to God and people. That has long been the central assertion of Christian political theology. I affirm it. The problem is with granting that claim a constitutional status which is exactly what investing a head of state in the context of a Christian service amounts to. Defenders of the coronation typically refer back to the polity of biblical Israel to justify its sacral character. But they tend not to acknowledge that, in the Hebrew scriptures, biblical Israel was, uniquely, established by God as a covenanted confessional polity in which only the religion of Yahweh was permitted and in which the priestly anointing of kings was prescribed. But this arrangement has now been rendered obsolete by the new covenant inaugurated in Jesus Christ. The people of God have been transformed into a transnational, voluntary fellowship of Christ followers, no longer bound to any one territorial, national, political community, still less to one legitimated by one religion and protecting only that religion. In the era of the New Covenant, states no longer possess the right to express an official view of the truth of religious claims. By implication, that also means they may not decide that any religion should be endorsed or preferred. This suggests they should maintain a posture of impartiality towards religions, and indeed towards other ultimate truth claims such as secular humanism. That is one way of treating their citizens equally which is another basic political principle originating in Christian theology. Some will reply by claiming that this is a secular liberal stance that abandons the political community to agnosticism, leaving a moral and spiritual vacuum at its heart. Rather, this view of the religious incompetence of the state is itself an outcome of Christian claims. These claims originated with the theologically orthodox 17th century dissenters but were eventually taken up by thinkers such as Locke and others in the broader liberal movement. A religiously impartial state is not a morally empty state, but a limited state, a humble state. It certainly needs the resources and challenges of faith communities, among many others, to fulfil its vocation to serve the common good. But it need not, and theologically may not, confer constitutional privilege on any religion or religious organisation. 
If the UK were to become such a state, its head of state could still be installed in a rich, morally freighted civil ceremony, perhaps in Westminster Hall, in which the monarch and the governments acting in their name could be solemnly charged to uphold law and justice with mercy, as the coronation oath puts it. Other European constitutional monarchies without coronations perform as well as ours on that score, mostly without any elements of an established church at all. The task of the Church of England and other churches alongside their citizens would be to project into political debate their particular visions of what these commitments mean and employ all democratic means to hold governments to account for fulfilling them. They are already doing this. They could do so more and more effectively. The Church of England could then do so unburdened by the jarringly mixed messages sent by its retention of constitutional privilege and by its very visible association with the royal pomp and opulence of a traditional coronation. It may only have a decade or so to prepare itself for such an eventuality. Dialing Down the Drama in the Science and Religion Debate by Andrew Davison Evolution isn't just an idea for me. Thinking about it has changed the course of my life. I arrived at university in the 1990s having been a member of a house church full of the kindest people but fundamentalist when it came to the Bible. I thought that the world was made in six days, 6,000 years ago. When I realised that the evidence is stacked against the idea to say the least, it almost cost me my faith. I got through that crisis because friends introduced me to Christian thinkers from the Middle Ages, especially Thomas Aquinas. Far from representing an age of fear and ignorance in the Dark Ages, I found there an intellectual world that thrived on questions, with such philosophical sophistication that I was sure any of its chief exponents could have taken evolution in their stride. The struggle between faith and science lifted. Eventually, the sorts of questions that had previously kept me awake at night in worry kept me awake in wonder. That was almost 30 years ago. Today, contemporary developments in evolutionary theory are one of the main strands of my work as a theologian. In two further articles, I will describe some of what's so interesting and disputed in biology and evolution at the moment. In one, I'll talk about the shift away from the idea that we can reduce everything down to the working of genes. That's sometimes called an example of nothing but a re. Here, the claim that our destiny is ultimately about nothing but genes. In the other, I'll talk about some of the ethical repercussions that those contemporary evolutionary developments might suggest on such practical matters as good housing. In the rest of this piece, however, I will stick with the idea that it's useful to see the idea of a tension between religion and science, not least over evolution, as being as much personal as intellectual. In particular, tensions over evolution in science versus religion are caught up with questions of identity, seeing oneself as a religious crusader against science or a scientific crusader against religion is an identity. It's part of the story you tell about yourself, part of what you take pride in. 
Since these are also identities that define themselves in opposition to one another, they tend to extremes. Reconciliation involves renegotiating one's identity. Nor is money insignificant. There's money to be made in writing shrill and divisive books, but in calm and conciliatory books, not so much. Angry books create interest on social media. They find to an already energised readership. Moderate books and authors who try to dampen the flames of animosity don't sell that well. Neither do books that are willing to say, actually, these questions are more complex or more nuanced. Crucial in these questions of identity is the gulf between those who see the elite and those who don't see themselves that way, a common theme in politics today. Why is a denial of evolution more common in poorer communities? It's not only that these people are without educational advantages, it's also that they feel on the disadvantaged side of an economic and cultural system. In that situation, people are typically all the more invested in what the system can't take from them, such as their ethnicity, their religion and its culture. Good on them for that. People in that situation will be all the more unwilling for others, whom they perceive as an elite, who enjoy all sorts of worldly advantages, to tell them what they think about their biological origins, bound up as they are, with dignity, faith and self-understanding. As an economically disadvantaged Muslim man once put it to me, no one's telling me that my faith's stupid or that I'm some sort of monkey. There's so much more going on in that statement than being wrong about the science. Moreover, disadvantaged people, and especially the majority who don't have white skin, have been on the receiving end of prejudice cast in evolutionary terms. Teaching the theory of evolution, glorious thought it is as a work of science, has a chequered moral history. That brings us back to monkeys. The Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 has achieved iconic status as the triumph of science over superstition in rural Tennessee. But it's more complex than that. The prosecution, with its anti-evolutionary stance, was wrong to dismiss evolution as a matter of science. They weren't wrong to be repelled by the science textbook at the heart of the case, which was uncomplicatedly racist, and indeed racist on supposedly evolutionary grounds. Evolution, it claimed, had produced lesser black and more advanced white races. As historians have also shown in recent decades, evolution was a powerful inspiration into the early century for advocates of cutthroat economics and politics. Winner takes all, survival of the fittest, let the poor go to the wall. I'm not saying that every bit of opposition to evolution among poorer communities rests only on the ways that evolutionary theory has been used against them, but it is useful to remember that some of the religious opposition to evolution in the 20th century came from a principled response to the unpleasant ethical, political and economic positions to which, they were told, evolution gave support, including full-on advocacy for eugenic programmes of sterilisation of the poor and contempt for the physically weak, all clothed in evolutionary garb. The spectacle of a science versus religion drama turns out to be about more than science, and also about more than theology or religious belief. 
It's also about identity, advantage and disadvantage, about some deeply unpalatable economic and social positions, and even about making money out of writing books. There's everything to be said for teaching biology well, and for arguing about the truth of evolution on scientific terms. I do a fair bit of that myself. There's everything to be said for teaching theology well, and for arguing that it can take evolution in its stride. That's even more my aim. But neither offers the full picture, and it's not helpful to think that anyone who doesn't believe in evolution is simply stupid or wicked. We won't get very far, not even as advocates of science, unless we are willing to listen. Unexpectedly, my experience is that the flagship scientific societies in the United States, where tension over evolution runs so high, are better at this than they are in the United Kingdom. Getting trapped in one end of some mutually reinforcing antagonism is hard to shake. It's difficult to get to a nuanced position when you're dealing with positions that are defined against each other. Whether arguments about evolution are part of your experience or not, there's a wider message here, which we might all do well to take on board, asking ourselves whether positions of animosity can become unhelpfully baked into our sense of ourselves. Accepting evolution does not naturally or inevitably lead to brutal social Darwinism. But it's been used that way in the past, more often than coverage of science today often lets on. We are by no means out of its shadow, even from under the shadow of eugenics. Being aware of that big historical picture is useful, but it shouldn't obscure the message from the beginning of this article that these matters are fundamentally personal and as much about how we see ourselves and others as they are about ideas. Reconciliation and understanding happen person by person and person to person. You might think the work I most relish as a priest and scientist or think most useful would be reassuring religious people that evolution isn't their enemy. That's a good thing to do. But I'm actually even more thankful for opportunities to reassure scientists that religion can be thoughtful, unafraid and even downright passionate about science. Turning up to dinner in my college, still in my cassock after Evensong, sitting next to visiting scientists and asking intelligent, enthusiastic questions about their science, it was much good as all the lectures I gave in churches, or to theology students, about the irreplicable value of science. Guys and Dolls Celebration of Commitment by Oliver Wright Guys and Dolls is the quintessential musical and it's playing gloriously at the Bridge Theatre in London right now. As I left the theatre the other day, I found myself on the ticket website wondering about gambling on an immediate return visit. Are shows ever as good second time round though? Can such a repeat ever bring new life? Or do repetitions fall flat? guilty of aesthetic anaesthetising. These worries reminded me of Kierkegaard's pseudonym, Constantin Constantius, and his somewhat bewildering psychological venture, Repetition, in 1843. In one scene, Constantius retraces his steps to a theatre where he remembers attending a farce that had him in raptures. 
The second time, however, not so much. I endured it for half an hour, Constantius reports, and then left the theatre thinking, there is no repetition at all. This made a deep impression on me. But the psychological experiment does not end there. The clue is in his name, Constantine Constantius, constancy doubled, repeated. Repetition can bring new life. All things can be made new, as he implies, if repetition is coupled with constancy, with commitment. That commitment drives repetition forward, not back. Repetition and recollection, he claims, are the same movement, except in opposite directions. For what is recollected has been, is repeated backwards, whereas genuine repetition is recollected forwards. What has all this to do with Guys and Dolls in London 2023? At one level, the show is a wonderful evocation of street life in mid-Manhattan, of smart but skittish low-level criminality, the pulsating rush for the next illicit game of dice, betting on the horses, falling in and out with dolls, and generally trying to evade the police. You sometimes think it's the gamblers and the gambling which steals a Guys and Dolls show. But the way this one plays at the Bridge Theatre, I was struck by such joy and exuberance and laughter, intermingled with a celebration of commitment. What does commitment have to do with gambling? What has commitment to do with joy? One of the leads, Sky Masterson, is my way in. We meet him first as something of a cad, flying around, emptying fellow gamblers' pockets, carousing in Havana, returning for another round of craps. But he nevertheless turns out to be a man of his word. He literally belongs to his promise. With a flourish early on, he hands over a fateful piece of paper, his marker, an IOU note. It is a guarantee. The beneficiary is the evangelising Sarah Brown from the Soul Mission, whose sky at this stage is wooing merely to win yet another bet. The marker is not as frivolous as his affections appear to be. This IOU has a power to which Sky willingly binds himself. Its force, Sky says, can be tested by anyone else in town. Markers will reappear again much later in the drama, in the chaotic scenes which lead to Sky's reappearance, as he desperately tries to discharge his obligation, and the magnificent luck be a lady tonight, itself an appeal for luck to prove constant, not to be fly-by-night. So there is an eager commitment when it comes to gambling to be good for the money, to be a man of my word. But the production shows another co-mingling of gambling and commitment in relationships. It falls to the principal women, Sarah and Miss Adelaide, rather farcically propping up a bar to expose this in Marry the Man Today. Marriage, like any relationship, involves gamble and commitment. The greater the proposed commitment, the greater the gamble. The greater the gamble up front, the greater will be the commitment required. If it wasn't a gamble, it wouldn't require commitment. Give him your hand today and save the fist for after. But commitment in the show is not portrayed as the grit your teeth or turn the other cheek kind of commitment, no. Commitment brings joy and new life to the drama. Without Sky's IOU, there's no guys and dolls. Without Sarah and Adelaide's search for commitment, there's only abuse. And this feeling of joy is widespread. 
The commitments being made are not just those on stage, but also by the audience. As you will read in the show's reviews, the audience are implicated in the action. They are immersed, standing alongside the actors who move and dance and sing their way through them. The audience are in the hot box strip joints sat at tables. They're gambling along with the crapshooters. They're witnesses to the testifying in the Save Soul mission, played in this production as a high point of the show with impromptu encores for Nicely Nicey's testimony, Sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. Indeed, they are not just witnesses, but participants. That is our commitment too. Without costume, we nevertheless agree to shed our outside lives, to participate, to be bound by the terms of the drama. And this shedding, this agreeing to be bound, this cost which we willingly take on ourselves, ignites joy. Commitment is not a stolid virtue. We need not shirk self-imposed restrictions in principle as being joyless. There is always a gamble in relationship, and relationships gamble only ever pays off through commitment. Commitment to the other. Commitment, like Kierkegaard's repetition, can forge new life. As well as negatively portraying the falling flat of aesthetic repetition, Kierkegaard also celebrates a repetition which is both more mundane and life-giving. It is life recollected forwards. He writes, Hope is a lovely maiden who slips away between one's fingers. Recollection is a beautiful old woman with whom one is never satisfied at the moment. Repetition is a beloved wife of whom one never wearies, for one becomes weary only of what is novel. Listener, I bought more tickets. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Seen and Unseen Aloud. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, why not share it with them?